You're listening to The Robin and Boom Show, engaging the contemporary world with the great tradition. Find us on our YouTube channel, our Facebook page, or on our website at robinmarkphillips.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, here's today's co-host, Robin Phillips. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Robin and Boom Show. Hello, Jason. Hey, Robin. So in the very first show we did earlier this year, which you can all access in the archives, Jason and I looked at a recent study on the effects of screen time on teenagers' well-being. And the researchers, you may remember, they concluded that there was no statistical correlation between a child's use of technology and his or her well-being. And in our critique of the study, Jason and I pointed out that the researchers employed a very narrow criteria of well-being that failed to include certain aspects that ought to actually be central to the discussion of, of what flourishing looks like. And the whole question of what constitutes well-being, or, or if you will, the flourishing of the soul, um, that's a question that we would contend cannot be adequately addressed without reference to the great tradition. And by the great tradition, we mean the wisdom that has been handed down by the philosophers, by the poets, prophets, and wise men of our cultural past, people like Jesus, Aristotle, Plato, the saints, and so forth. Within this cultural tradition, there is a very rich vocabulary for dealing with issues of the modern world, including psychology and technology. Now, one aspect of psychological well-being that features again and again in the great tradition is attentiveness. A flourishing human being is a person who is able to regulate his or her attention and to use attentiveness both for greater self-awareness and greater awareness of others. Now, what's really interesting about attentiveness is that modern cognitive psychology and neuroscience have discovered that the um, executive control that we have over our attention is directly related to social social virtues like empathy and emotional intelligence. And conversely, when our attention is impoverished, for example, through technologies that rewire our brains to be constantly distracted, the parts of our brain needed for empathy and emotional intelligence, they actually shrink. And this has been proven scientifically. So attentiveness is very important for these social virtues. Now, what we, that's what we want to talk about today, about the role that technology is playing in diminishing our ability to exercise empathy and emotional intelligence, or what's called EQ. And also, we want to talk about why these virtues are, um, are part of what a flourishing life looks like. Um, and we, we will define our, our terms for you as the discussion goes along. Some of you may not be familiar with what we mean by things like um, um, emotional intelligence or the various um, parts of, of empathy. Um, so there's a lot to talk about today. And to help us unpack these questions, we're joined by Mark Wiseman. Mark Wiseman lives in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and he is part of the Orthodox parish that I attend at St. John the Baptist Orthodox Church in Post Falls, Idaho. 
Now, there's a lot I could say about Mark, but it should suffice to mention that his claim to fame is being the voice that you hear at the beginning of each episode of the Robin and Boom Show. Uh, say hello to our listeners, Mark, so I'm sure they'll all recognize your voice. Good morning, everyone, and good morning, Robin and Jason. I, I half expected to hear mu- music playing when you spoke there. <laughs> I'd like to think that music emanates when I speak, but not as, that's not the case. Well, we can certainly imagine that's the case in possible worlds. But there's a lot to talk about today. Is there a relationship between attention and empathy? And if there is, should we be concerned for the way technology is eroding our attentiveness skills? I think certainly technology, well, especially digital technology, is eroding attention. You know, about technology... It just means the methods, the skills, the the logos, the reason of doing things. So, t- you know, technology in the pr- is a very broad level, but we use technology to referring specifically to things with screens and electronics. I think what's happening here, what the reason why digital technology really affects attention versus, say, automotive technology or kitchen technology, when you use your kitchen appliances or a tractor, is that with electronics, digital screens, computers, we are dealing with simulations of the mind or even simulations of imagination and memory. Like people talk about artificial intelligence. Well, what that actually is are simulations of certain cognitive processes especially imagination and memory. And to keep people engaged for commercial reasons, to keep people paying attention to the same site or app or company or show, there's just a constant stream of changing pleasurable images, creating some kind of, you know this better, you know, some kind of pleasure cycle. But the whole process of that is we are getting our brains sucked into these simulated minds on these little screens, and their job is precisely to keep us distracted and to have a discoherent personality. That's their job. So I actually don't know how, how that relates to empathy. You've brought this up for the first time. I had not thought about the connection between attentiveness and empathy before. I have thought a lot about how digital technology affects attentiveness. And, you know, just for the record, this is something I struggle with, as I'm sure many of our listeners also do. It's, you know, it's a continual thing. And this is the big paradox of contemporary life. We need these little monsters, the phones and computers, just to do our work, in many cases, be connected socially, and yet, how do we maintain our attentiveness and these other related skills that you're bringing up, such as empathy, such as emotional intelligence? I don't know. Yeah, um, well, the whole issue of of rewiring our brains for for um, distractedness, a state of perpetual distraction, I, I agree completely because the the firms that are behind these digital technologies have an economic incentive uh, incentive to keep us perpetually distracted. Um, 
And um, let's just go around the, the block with that a bit before we get into some of these emotional questions, because I know Mark has worked with technology for most of his career. Um, so I assume as you've seen technology evolve that you've probably observed some of these these factors. Well, there's the in a couple of different ways. There's the in the corporate setting and the in the work setting, and then there's the experience I have in my own life. So, in one sense, I can think back to uh, the last eight years I spent in a technology company, and so I was around all kinds of personalities. You had uh, developers who were, of course, writing the code, and you had salespeople who were selling the end product. I was doing training where I interfaced between the technical side and the and the consumer. Uh, so you had all these different levels and you could observe, I could observe the way people interacted. And in truth, some of it is the innate personality somebody brings to the technology. But I, I observed in myself that I could spend a whole day at work on a screen. And, and one would think that at the end of that day, you'd want to shut it off and be oh so happy to be done with it. And instead, I could go home many times and and then pick up a, a different computer at home and read you know, personally interesting articles from whatever milieu and and neglect a conversation with my wife, for example, uh, which was uh, to her chagrin, I can tell you. Uh, so there's the personal aspect of it where one wonders with this attention magnet, this pull on your attention, is there any end to it? And of course, the brain is getting rewired and you seem to go deeper and deeper down the technological rabbit hole. Um, I did notice in the workplace another interesting phenomenon, which was just a couple of brief observations. One was that earlier on, uh, people communicated chiefly with email. So you had a lot of emails going in and out of your box, and you'd walk down the hallway if you really needed to, to speak to someone. And But as, as instant communication came up, there's even more screens inside screens. So on your computer screen, you have a pop-up. That's, and Robin is saying, you know, or Jason, whomever it may be, has a message for you. Well, you might be looking at an email from that same person while they're popping up from you or on your screen, and other people are too. And so there's distractions within the distractions. And, and this, this whole um, corrosive impact on one's attention span, as you mentioned, Jason, attentiveness, just uh, it's the victim in, in all of this. Uh, but the personal side is what I experienced more at home after a day of distractions i came home and found solace at times i didn't frame it that way to myself and i don't think people do frame it that way but they find solace in yet more screens there's tremendous irony there yeah um interesting yeah yeah I, in the office i um spent some time at a couple of years ago for for a um, firm i was doing some consulting for people who people would email each other even though they had adjacent offices um offices five five feet away and yet they would would email but uh, so it's interesting mark you talk about coming home and still having your mind um forged by the habits of digital distractedness um it's interesting because i reviewed a lot of the research about how the brain is being rewired by technology and a common misunderstanding about these digital distractions is that they primarily work on us while we are at the devices but a large body of research suggests that actually the um a more uh, sinister and worrying 
way that our brains are being rewired manifests itself when we actually put down the phone, when we're actually unplugged, and yet our mental habits still follow the same cadences of mind forged um, through our digital technology use. The habits, the habits of of non-attentiveness, perpetual distractibility, superficiality, inability to be still. These um, these habits of mind um, follow us even when we're not actually on the screen. So that's a misunderstanding people have about distractedness. Um, if I have a phone on me, um, lo- looking, glancing at a text message or correctly reading email, that may take only a few seconds of my time. But the, what they call switch cost, which is the um, neurological residue of being on the phone even for a second or two, that can last up to, um, um, some people say, 15 minutes. Because in the background of your mind, you're, um, you're processing what they call information potential, where you're thinking, oh, I wonder if, um, if, 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 if this person is going to reply to me, or I wonder if, if, if someone is going to, if there's going to be, be something I need to respond to. And even when you, you are not plagued by that information potentiality, um, the, the habits of mind of, of uh, perpetual distractibility and non-attentiveness still, still um, can be a factor. Many people find, um, for example, people who used to love reading books for hours and hours. Um, after a couple of pages, they become restless. They want to go check their email. Want to do something else. Want to be want to be fed by by um, by continual stimulation. So. Um, yeah, I think it's a I think it's a um, a huge concern. J- Jason, when you talk about habits of mind, that brought up about a very important thing about what you just referred to as the great tradition, the role of habits. That every action that we do has an echo or an effect. That Every action we perform affects us even after the action is over. Actions build up the consequences within us. Now, I'm used to thinking of habit in the sense of behavioral habit. You know, like, uh, say, if you hear a siren, then maybe you're in the habit of doing something like looking out the window to see what, what that is. An action being triggered by a sign. But as you point out, there are habits of mind, and you combine this idea that our cognitive actions shape our mental habits, you combine that with the neurological finding that our brains are malleable, neuroplasticity, that we can actually structure or reshape how our brains are wired. That's a pretty pretty big impact. So it's no wonder that even something like a two-minute time spent looking at an email or an instant message, it just builds up to this reshaping of our, of our brains and the reshaping of our minds through these habits. And what you say is true. I used to be able to read books 
for a much longer time. And these habits of mind of just constant visual, digital stimulations, it makes reading an actual book harder. Yes, yes, in, in, indeed. Um, and I'm glad you brought up the whole issue of neuroplasticity. Um, a couple of resources I would recommend about that is the book The Shallows by Nicholas Carr um, about how the internet is rewiring our brains and also The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Doidge. Um, these are um, two very good entry-level texts into the whole science of um, neuroplasticity and how, how our tools um, impact that. There's a there's another thought, Jason, that you you stimulated for me there, which is uh, I too suffer from the the lessening attention span to traditional books, but there's perhaps a corollary there or, or parallel, which is somebody with technical skill or a built up technical habit on these kinds of uh, devices sometimes is perceived as having um, almost wisdom because of their access to information, but but of course access to information and wisdom aren't the same thing. So uh, there's this misconception that technical skill somehow equals personal skill or personal capability when ironically it's, it's eroding that at the same time, uh, almost in the proportion that one becomes skilled with more and more technology and you know the inner workings of this and that different device, your personal skills, including reading, but also interactions of people seem to sort of, uh, crumble on the other side of the coin. And empathy is one of those things that can suffer, it seems. Yeah. So, you know, traditionally, there's a distinction between cleverness and wisdom. So cleverness is, say, things like technical skill, right? You know, it's and, and progress. You know, progress is not unambiguous. When you make an advance in one area, usually there's going to be some regress in another area at the same time. So, you know, our children today are more technically skilled than any generation before in history. And yet they're facing greater challenges to connecting with the environment, social, physical, natural. There's just tremendous irony that we call it, quote, communication technology when it robs communication. Yeah. Um, And this, this was impressed upon me when I was talking to um, a police detective a couple of years ago who trains, um, who works at the academy to train new officers. And despite all the training they put the students through, he said that one of the hardest things is for them is is the day when they take them to the Spokane Mall with the assignment of having to initiate conversation with strangers. And that is the most terrifying thing for them because they just don't know how to talk to people. And having um, that's a terrifying um aspect of the training and this this might be a good point to look a little more closely at the concepts of empathy and emotional intelligence so um, emo- um empathy is a subset of emotional intelligence or, or eq um eq is a person's ability to accurately perceive their own emotions and to use this information to act wisely and also to be able to perceive the emotions of others and to respond to that information in a wise way. And part of what that involves is empathy. Now, with empathy, there are two types of empathy. There is emotional empathy, 
which is our ability to feel what another person is feeling, even when we have not personally had that feeling, to be able to creatively extend ourselves into somebody else's emotional frame of, of reference. Um, that's emotional empathy. But then psychologists also talk about something called cognitive empathy, which is the ability to, to know what another person is thinking and to understand why they might be thinking as they, they do. Uh, like Aristotle said, the mark of an educated man is the ability to um, think, uh, to entertain a, a, a thought that you do not personally think or something like that. I can't remember. Uh, that's a paraphrase. But in the great tradition, it's been emphasized that part of being able to be a good communicator and a good thinker is to be able to put your mind into um, the mind of somebody else and to be able to, that would include being able to summarize um, their viewpoint in a way that, that they could say, yeah, that, that, that's what I mean, even if you don't personally um, believe it. So that that's a form of, of cognitive empathy. Emotional empathy, like I say, is the ability to, um, um, to, to feel what someone else is, is feeling. And it's different from sympathy, which is, feeling sorry for someone. So there's there's these emotional skills that go into, into well-being. And I want to just read a quote from a scientist who's done some work on how the parts of the brain needed for these emotional skills are shrinking, particularly with teenagers who spend a lot of time with digital technology. Um, this is from Gary Small and Gigi Vorgan in their book, iBrain. Um, they write, besides influencing, and, and these are conclusions that they share based on um, peer-reviewed research and different studies that have been undertaken. Besides influencing how we think, di digital technology is altering how we feel, how we behave, and the way in which our brains function. Although we are unaware of these changes in our neural circuitry or brain wiring, these alterations can become permanent with repetition. As the brain evolves and shifts its focus towards new technological skills, it drifts away from fundamental social skills, such as reading facial expressions during conversations or grasping the emotional context of a subtle gesture. As Stanford University studied a Stanford University study found that for every hour we spend on our computers, traditional face-to-face -face interaction time with other people drops by nearly 30 minutes. With the weakening of the brain's neurocircuitry controlling human contact, our social interactions may become awkward, and we tend to misinterpret and even miss subtle nonverbal cues. Dr. Robert McGurvin and co-workers at San Diego State University have found that when kids enter adolescence, they struggle with the ability to recognize another person's emotions. This is, is, is universal. It's part of the teenage brain. And then he continues, during the study, the, teenagers the teenage volunteers viewed faces demonstrating different emotional states. And he goes, goes on and says that how it's harder for teenagers to recognize different emotions and facial expressions. Um, and, and this is big. I'm paraphrasing now, this is because of a pruning down process that occurs as the teenager brain matures and enters 
um, adulthood and after this um, pruning down process, expression recognition becomes faster and more efficient. So there's this window of time where as the teenager's brain is maturing, one of the functions that um, th th that is decreased is this ability to perceive emotions in others. Um, now, um, he um, continues. Now, this is really the take-home point that I wanted to share. Um, unfortunately, today's obsession with computer technology and video gaming appears to be stunting frontal lobe development in many teenagers, impairing their social and reasoning abilities. If young people continue to mature in this fashion, their brain's neural pathways may never catch up. It is possible that they could remain locked into a neural circuitry that stays at an immature or self-absorbed emotional level right through adulthood, so that they become stuck in 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 this in this period, which is tran transitional within the teenager's brain, um, actually becomes solidified, and their brain doesn't mature in these um, key areas of of emotional recognition, emotional regulation, and emotional intelligence. Um, and then he continues, he asks, are we rearing a new generation with underdeveloped frontal lobes, a group of young people unable to learn, remember, feel, or control their impulses? Wow. Robin, let me just jump in here, please. This is, I've, there are lots in the news, lots of terrifying things that we hear about. You know, everything from you know, radical terrorism, disasters, possible threats to the economy. What you've just said is maybe the most terrifying thing I've heard. The idea that these habits, these habits of brain and mind that we're forming are permanent, that we'll never lose them, and especially that these are developing in a permanent way in children in teenagers for the rest of their lives being locked into a kind of cognitive prison. That is a really horrifying thing. I wish we could go on more with that, but we're coming we're pretty much at the end of our time here. Um, Mark, any, any final comments you'd like to make? Well, I think as I look at, at kids, and I agree with you that it is it is terrifying, the idea that frontal lobe development is, is permanently stunted. That is terrifying. And even in those of us who are well past our uh, teenage experience, it seems like there's a lot of inwardness, and to, but it's not introspective. Uh, I mean, there's cultural themes around this. You go to a coffee shop and two people are sitting across from each other, perhaps texting each other from a distance of three feet, and which is sort of funny, but it's not when you, when you take into con uh, consideration what Robin just said. It, and about the at the training of the Spokane police and no doubt other places where social skills have eroded. So there's all this inwardness, thinking one's own thoughts, reflecting on one's own screens, but it's anything but introspective. That's a really good distinction between inwardness and introspection. That I guess what what you mean what you mean by that, Mark, that someone can be withdrawn, but not but not picking up, not getting self knowledge not really understanding their own thoughts and feelings, but still within themselves, not connected with things. Right, right. It's almost uh, a parallel with technical skill does not equal personal or social skill. 
and that inwardness. It's it's not cultivating wisdom or or introspection, though it kind of looks like it from the outside. Gee, that person is contemplating. You would think what they're looking at on their screen, but it at the level that they're doing it, it's actually eroding the very faculty they need to glean wisdom out of whatever it is they're taking in through that screen. Yes. Yes. Um, just like being emotional doesn't mean that you have emotional intelligence. Similarly, um, being inward doesn't equate, uh, being, um, being, uh, in, inward and self-absorbed doesn't equate to healthy introspection. Um, now, um, th that's the bad news. The, the good news is that there are some specific skills that can be cultivated to actually grow in emotional intelligence and empathy and interpersonal skills. And I want to, we're going to have to postpone that discussion uh, for another week, but I, we will be sharing with you some specific steps that you can take, that your teenagers can take to rewire the brain in healthier ways because neuroplasticity is a very um, positive um, phenomenon that can be leveraged for good, just like it can be leveraged for, for bad. But that will be the topic of another edition of the Robin and Boom Show. Um, thank you, Mark, for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate you coming over here and doing this broadcast with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. The Robin and Boom Show is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you. To become a patron of the show, go to robinmarkphillips.com and select The Robin Boom Show from the drop-down menu. If you have questions you'd like to have addressed on a future episode, send us a message through our Facebook page. Once again, thanks for listening.